Welcome to A Beggar Who Found Bread. I'm your host, a beggar of humble means, and my name is Brad. This beggar found bread, the bread of life, the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. And I hope to reveal this bread to others that they may come to experience new life in him. This episode, The Heart of a Graveyard. Shout out to Demon Hunter for the title to this episode. Yes, that's right. Going back to Demon Hunter. It's been a little while, so, you know, a quick shout out to them for the title to this episode. And I've used a few of their songs over the years, over the seasons of this podcast. Probably more of their song titles than any other band. And I'll tell you, for this episode, I bounced around between a few options. I was looking at using Resurrection, the song by Fear Factory. And then I thought, well, I could just use the title from Demon Hunter's acoustic album, Songs of Death and Resurrection. And it actually, I went through the the notes and preparing this entire episode and changed my mind at the last and am going with Heart of a Graveyard. And if you're not familiar with that song, it's a little bit more of a, a mellower song by Demon Hunter. And the title says, or the chorus goes, tell me that your final home is not a shot in the dark. Tell me that your hopes and dreams don't end in the heart of a graveyard. And so there's a reference there to resurrection. And that's where we're, that's where we're going to be in this episode. And, you know, people might ask me, well, why do you use titles from Demon Hunter so often? Well, first of all, they're a great band. I love their versatility. They do some experimental stuff and they stay true to the metal core while doing all those things. Two, many of their songs have titles and lyrics that are faith-related. And three, it's my podcast, so I kind of feel like I should be able to do what I want when it comes to titling the episodes. You know, not to be a jerk or anything. Some of you may not be aware, but this podcast actually used to go by another name altogether. And after some public outcry, after the first season, I changed the name to what it is currently, A Beggar Who Found Bread. And I don't regret the name change. And I, I like this one better, actually. I think it, it fits more to what we do on this podcast. But I will say that I lost some listeners who subscribed to the previous title. And so when I changed the name of it, their subscription remained with what the old title was. In, in any event... Uh, Demon Hunter, I referenced Songs of Death and Resurrection, which is their acoustic album. And they did they did something that I thought was super creative during the pandemic. It was in December of 2020, and they did a live studio video concert with an acoustic version of, or acoustic versions of several of their songs and then they had one new release in there as well and then they subsequently released all of these acoustic songs on that album songs of death and resurrection 
And the thing that I really like about the album and the way they did the songs is they didn't just unplug and perform the songs as like a toned down version of the originals. They reorchestrated the songs, giving them just a completely fresh sound. And I've said this before, Ryan Clark is incredibly versatile in his vocals, and he is one of the best songwriters out there. Demon Hunter is currently on their 20 Years of Exile tour, playing selections from all 11 of their studio albums. So check out their schedule to see when they'll be near you. All right. It's not about the music. It is about the message. So on with the show. The Heart of a Graveyard. Today, we will take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're not going to get through breaking down all 58 verses in this episode. We're actually going to get pretty much right to the halfway point. We'll, uh, we'll get through discussing up to verse 29. And as you know, many people refer to 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the faith chapter. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. We're going to uh, we're, we're we're going through an overview of the entire book of 1 Corinthians and we've come to actually the last two chapters of the apostle Paul's letter to the believers in the city of Corinth. And for a brief moment, I thought two more chapters equals two more episodes and then we will wrap up this study. And, of course, after remembering how much there is in chapter 15, I figured, uh, okay, maybe three more episodes and we'll be done with this study. Two for chapter 15 and one for chapter 16. Well, now I'm not even sure that that's going to do it, but we'll get as far as we can and we and trust Adonai that we cover what's necessary for this time. And in however many more portions it takes, we will continue going through this study, Lord willing. And we did begin going through this overview with the Nobody's Fool episode. And for those of you who are new to this program, or if you've missed some here and there, when you have time, go back and Join us in the complete study. Each episode in the study has its own theme or topic, so it stands on its own. You don't have to go through the entire thing to latch on to what's being discussed in each and every episode. Nobody's Fool and The Spirit Thing are the first two episodes of this study, and they do provide more of the history and context of this letter to bring a fuller understanding of what Paul refers to as he addresses this first century assembly of believers in Hashem, the God of the universe, through the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth. So, let us dive into chapter 15, and I am going to read through the whole chapter to keep the overlying theme intact. If you have your Bible, please read along. If not, please give your undivided attention to the words of the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Now, brothers... 
I must remind you of the good news which I proclaimed to you and which you received, and on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, provided you keep holding fast to the message I proclaimed to you. For if you don't, your trust will have been in vain. For among the first things I passed on to you was what I also received, namely this, the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with what the Tanakh says, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with what the Tanakh says. And he was seen by Kepha, and then by the twelve, and afterwards he was seen by more than five hundred brothers at one time, the majority of whom are still alive, though some have died. Later, he was seen by Yaakov, then by all the emissaries, and at last, last of all, he was seen by me, even though I was born at the wrong time. For I am the least of all the emissaries, unfit to be called an emissary because I persecuted the messianic community of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I have worked harder than all of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Anyhow, whether I or they, this is what we proclaim, and this is what you believed. But if it has been proclaimed that the Messiah has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the Messiah has not been raised. And if the Messiah has not been raised, then what we have proclaimed is in vain. Also, your trust is in vain. Furthermore, we are shown up as false witnesses for God and having testified that God raised up the Messiah, whom he did not raise up, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then the Messiah has not been raised either. And if the Messiah has not been raised, your trust is useless, and you are still in your sins. Also, if this is the case, those who died in union with the Messiah are lost. If it is only for this life that we have put our hope in the Messiah, we are more pitiable than anyone. But the fact is that Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come through a man. For just as in connection with Adam, all die, so in connection with the Messiah, all will be made alive. But each in his own order. The Messiah is the firstfruits, then those who belong to the Messiah at the time of his coming. Then the culmination, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power. For he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away with will be death. For he put everything in subjection under his feet. But when it says that everything has been subjected 
Obviously, the word does not include God, who is himself the one subjecting everything to the Messiah. Now, when everything has been subjected to the Son, then he will subject himself to God, who is subjected, who subjected everything to him, so that God may be everything in everyone. Were it otherwise, what would the people accomplish who were immersed on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not actually raised, why are people immersed for them? For that matter, we ourselves, why do we keep facing danger hour by hour? Brothers, by the right to be brothers, by the right to be proud which Messiah Yeshua our Lord gives me, I solemnly tell you that I die every day. If my fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus was done merely on a human basis, what do I gain by it? If dead people are not raised, we might as well live by the saying, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled. Bad company ruins good character. Come to your senses, live righteously and stop sinning. There are some people who lack knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, in what manner are the dead raised? What sort of body do they have? Stupid. When you sow a seed, it doesn't come alive unless it first dies. Also, what you sow is not the body that will be, but a bare seed of, say, wheat or something else. But God gives it the body he intended for it. And to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all living matter is the same living matter. On the contrary, there is one kind for human beings, another kind for, of living matter for animals, and another for birds, and another for fish. Further, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the beauty of heavenly bodies is one thing, while the beauty of earthly bodies is something else. The sun has one kind of beauty, the moon another, the stars yet another. Indeed, each star has its own individual kind of beauty. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. When the body is sown, it decays. When it is raised, it cannot decay. When sown, it is with without dignity, when it raised, it will be beautiful. When sown, it is weak. When raised, it will be strong. When sown, it is an ordinary human body. When raised, it will be a body controlled by the Spirit. If there is an ordinary human body, there is also a body controlled by the Spirit. In fact, the Tanakh says so. Adam, the first man, became a living human being. But the last Adam has been a life-giving spirit. Note, however, that the body from the spirit did not come first, but the ordinary human one. The one from the spirit comes afterwards. The first man is from the earth made of dust. The second man is from heaven. 
People born of dust are like the man of dust, and people born from heaven are like the man from heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also we will bear the image of the man from heaven. Let me say this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot share in the kingdom of God, nor can something that decays share in what does not decay. Look, I will tell you a secret. Not all of us will die, but we will all be changed. It will take but a moment, the blink of an eye, at the final shofar, for the shofar will sound and the dead will be raised to live forever, and we too will be changed. For this material which can decay must be clothed with imperishability. This which is mortal must be clothed with immortality." When what decays puts on imperishability and what is mortal puts on immortality, then this passage in the Tanakh will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and sin draws its power from the Torah. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So, My dear brothers, stand firm and immovable, always doing the Lord's work as vigorously as you can, knowing that united with the Lord, your efforts are not in vain. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter. So let's take a look at some of what Paul has written to these believers. And keep in mind the audience of this letter. This is a congregation mostly made up of God-fearing Gentile believers in the Messiah Yeshua. They have come out of pagan, idolatrous worship practices, very sinful behaviors. And they have now put their faith in the one true God, the God of Israel, through his son, Yeshua of Nazareth. Also within this assembly are some believers in Yeshua who are Jewish. It is approximately the year 54 in the Common Era when this letter is, uh, was written. And Paul had helped plant this congregation approximately four years earlier than when this letter uh, was written. He's following up with them through written correspondence to address some concerns he has with this fellowship. He writes... From, from the beginning of chapter 15. Now, brothers, I must remind you of the good news which I proclaimed to you and which you received and on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved, provided you keep holding fast to the message I proclaimed to you. For if you don't, your trust will have been in vain. These are the first two verses of this chapter. Due to the issues which have risen in this fellowship, many of which Paul identified in the earlier chapters of this letter, he is calling to their memories the declaration of faith they initially made to reinforce how they are supposed to be living, shining a fresh light, so to speak, 
on the love Adonai has poured out for them through the offering of Yeshua and the power with which they have been endowed through the outpouring of the Spirit of Elohim upon them. Paul reminds these believers that he proclaimed the gospel message, Repent, the kingdom is at hand. It is so close that the Messiah has been identified as Yeshua of Nazareth, who was crucified on your behalf and raised from the dead by the power of the Most High God, El Elyon. The message is proclaimed and received. There, there is then further teaching which is internalized so that we, once we, it has been proclaimed to us and we receive the message, then we get the further teaching. We internalize that teaching so that we may stand on it as the firm foundation of our faith. And this is exactly what Paul is saying to these believers. Through this, we are being saved through standing on the faith in the message which was proclaimed to us, which we have received, we are being saved, provided we continue to hold fast. That is, that we continue adhering to the message which has been proclaimed. And yes, that is a condition as far as being saved. That is a condition. And this is contrary to popular present-day doctrine. But we see this type of warning throughout the New Testament writings from the apostles and the words of the Master himself. If you keep my commandments, you are my disciples. We see phrases like strive for, hold fast to, and so forth. There are other similar phrases that are used regarding maintaining our relationship with the Holy One, blessed be He, through the Messiah Yeshua. It is a continuous work being done within us, salvation. All right, so we're picking up at verse 3. For among the first things I passed on to you was what I also received, namely this. The Messiah died for our sins in accordance with what the Tanakh says, and he was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with what the Tanakh says, and he was seen by Kepha, then by the twelve, and afterwards he was seen by more than five hundred brothers at one time, the majority of whom are still alive, though some have died. So, Paul is talking about the witnesses now the many witnesses of Messiah. As a refresher for the Jewish believers in this congregation, and I believe as a revelation to the Gentile believers, Paul says that there, uh, he, he says that the fact that Yeshua died for our sins, was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, has been prophesied about in the Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, the Hebrew text. We must keep in mind the scripture which was available at this time and is what, was, what, is what many call the Old Testament. 
So the Gospels, the Epistles, and Revelation were not canonized or considered Scripture. At this, at this time, Paul is writing this letter, which would later be canonized. So they relied on the Hebrew text. The good news, gospel message, was preached, and quite effectively, through the Torah, prophets, and writings. Now, here are some references uh, which undoubtedly would have been used and could be used as proof text of what Paul has written. Isaiah 59 and verse 2. Rather, it is your own crimes that separate you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he doesn't hear. Our sin separates us from God. Then in Genesis chapter 2, uh, we'll start at verse 16. Adonai, God gave the person this order. You may freely eat from every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat from it because on the day that you eat from it, it will become certain that you will die. From the beginning, we see the wages of sin is death. And that's something that the Apostle Paul echoes in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, a verse many are familiar with. The wages of sin is death. This has been established from the beginning. That's Genesis 2 we just read. Since the wage of sin is death, the only way to atone for sin is death. But it must be, in order for it to be atonement, the death of one whose life was without sin. We see in Genesis chapter 3, it was Hashem who provided the first offering and the skins of the animals uh, provided clothing for Adam and Eve. But the life of those animals, that was given up because sin entered in. And so Hashem provides the first offering for sin. In Genesis 4, we read about the offerings of Cain and Abel, Cain's offering of the plants of the earth and Abel's offering from the flocks, animals. So these offerings were the template for the ritual offerings of the temple services. Those initially started in the tabernacle as prescribed by Adonai for his people. The tabernacle and temple offerings, the Levitical offerings, if you will, are effective for this present world, Olam Hazeh. They are effective temporarily for this present world, and this is recorded in Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. Something greater has to occur for atonement which is eternal that which can lead to a portion in the coming kingdom, Olam Haba. This, or, or, or thus, we see what was foretold by Hashem through his prophet Isaiah in chapters 52 and 53. This is messianic prophecy, those two chapters, and even on into chapter 54. And it describes by what type of death the Messiah would succumb and the reason for his death. From Isaiah 53, 
starting at verse 4. In fact, it was our disease he bore, our pains from which he suffered. Yet we regarded him as punished, stricken, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded because of our crimes, crushed because of our sins. The disciplining that makes us whole fell on him, and by his bruises we are healed. After his death, Messiah would be buried. And so we read those two verses we just read speak to the reason for Yeshua's death and what type of death he would suffer. Down into verse 9 of Isaiah 53, we read that he would be buried. And this, again, just reinforcing all that Paul has said in 1 Corinthians 15 about the death, burial, and resurrection on the third day of the Messiah. Isaiah 53 and verse 9, He was given a grave among the wicked in his death. He was with a rich man. And so this speaks to Messiah being buried. After his death, he would be buried. And this verse actually continues on and reinforces the sacrificial nature, the offering aspect of Messiah's death. So picking up at the at Isaiah 53, 9b, Although he had done no violence and had said nothing deceptive, as it, as it is written in the Brit Hadashah, the New Testament writings, he was in all points tempted, yet without sin. He is the spotless Lamb of God. Picking back up. Yet it pleased Adonai to crush him with illness, to see if he would present himself as a guilt offering, if he does, he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and at his hand Adonai's desire will be accomplished. After these things, in order to live once more and reveal eternal life, Messiah had to be resurrected, not just revived or resuscitated to continue life in this present world, but to be resurrected to unveil what will be in the coming kingdom. We see this foreshadowed in the first fruit celebration following the Passover. Also from Isaiah 53, after this ordeal, he will see satisfaction. By his knowing pain and sacrifice, my righteous servant makes many righteous. It is for their sins that he suffers. Therefore, I, I will assign him a share with the great. He will divide the spoil with the mighty for having exposed himself to death and being counted among the sinners while actually bearing the sin of many and interceding for the offenders. Then in Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11, we read, For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not let your faithful one see the abyss. You make me know the path of life. In your presence is unbound joy. In your right hand, eternal delight. So we read 
of the general resurrection, not just of Messiah, but of all those who belong to Hashem. Your dead will live. My corpses will rise, awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the morning dew, and the earth will bring the ghosts to life. So we see in all of these passages, and there's, there's much more throughout the Tanakh, of course, and these are, these are just a few highlighted verses that speak to the death, burial, and resurrection of the Messiah. And there is also reference to the general resurrection. Your dead will live. This is speaking of those who die, who belong to Hashem. My corpses will rise. All right, moving forward. And just referring to the third day, because Paul references or refers to that Yeshua, the Messiah, was raised on the third day. And so from the Tanakh, because this is what he is referencing, these things are all recorded in the Tanakh, is what Paul is saying. So there is in 2 Kings, the 20th chapter, reading about King Hezekiah. And he was, for, for those who don't know, King Hezekiah was thought to be the Messiah. And in fact, many of the prophecies of Messiah were fulfilled in Hezekiah. I believe him to be an early revealing or a foreshadowing of the true Messiah. And that's really an interesting study and perhaps for another episode, Lord willing, we'll see. But in 2 Kings 20 and verse 8, we see Hezekiah says to Yeshayahu, that's Isaiah, what sign will there be that Adonai will heal me and that I will be able to go up to the house of Adonai on the third day? So Hezekiah was greatly ill and even, even close to death. And so he was raised up that he could enter the house of Adonai on the third day. Again, I believe this to be a foreshadowing of Messiah. A reference to Messiah being raised up on the third day. Then in Hosea chapter 6, we read, After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up and we will live in his presence. And this speaks not only to the raising up of the nation Israel, but to the means by which they will be raised up namely through the risen one, King Messiah. That after his death, Messiah would be buried and raised again on the third day. And these are some of the witnesses, the, the verses that I've just read to you, these are some of the witnesses from the Tanakh, which testify of the promised Messiah. Now, Paul shares that there are witnesses who are contemporaries of those within this fellowship in the city of Corinth. Beginning at verse 5, And he, Yeshua, was seen after his resurrection by Kepha, then by the twelve. That's Peter, by the way. Kepha is Peter. 
and then by the twelve. And afterwards, he was seen by more than 500 brothers at one time, the majority of whom are still alive, though some have died. Later, he was seen by Yaakov, then by all the emissaries. And last of all, he was seen by me, even though I was born at the wrong time. So what Paul's saying is here, he did not physically witness the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Yeshua because he was born later than that. He continues on, For I am the least of all emissaries, unfit to be called an emissary because I persecuted the messianic community of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I have worked harder than all of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God with me. Anyhow, whether I or they, this is what we proclaim, and this is what you believed. From the Torah, we know that you need two or three witnesses to establish truth. Paul reveals a preponderance of witnesses which overwhelmingly establish the message which is being proclaimed. Next, Paul confronts a problem in the fellowship. Seeds of doubt pertaining to the resurrection are creeping in among these believers. And the doubts appear to be related to the general resurrection at the time Messiah establishes his kingdom on earth. And so Paul is challenging this premise by reminding them that if there is no resurrection in the general sense, then that means even Messiah has not been resurrected if there is not a resurrection of the dead. So let's read beginning at verse 12. But it has been proclaimed that the Messiah has been raised from the dead. How is it that some of you are saying there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the Messiah has not been raised. And if the Messiah has not been raised, then what we have proclaimed to you is in vain. Also, your trust is in vain. I'm hitting the pause button here for a second. So it's it's like, Paul is saying, what are you even believing? If there's no such thing as the bodily resurrection from the dead, what, what is it exactly that you believe in? Picking up at verse 15. Furthermore, we are shown up as false witnesses for God in having testified that God raised up the Messiah, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Pausing again. If there's no resurrection, then all those who have testified to include the prophets are false witnesses. On to verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then the Messiah has not been raised either. And if the Messiah has not been raised, your trust is useless and you are still in your sins. The completion of atonement occurs when the offering well, when the the offering raises up, it rises up to Hashem, but the completion of atonement occurs when the high priest enters the most holy place, the holy of holies. And so if Messiah, the true high priest, is not raised and did not ascend, 
then we remain in our sin and there is no eternal hope. Picking up at verse 18. Also, if this is the case, the fact that there is no resurrection, those who died in union with Messiah are lost. If it is only for this life that we have put our hope in the Messiah, we are more pitiable than anyone. And this statement in verse 19, if it is only for this life that we put our hope in Messiah, I believe this corresponds very well with what we read in Hebrews 9 and 10, which speaks of the temporary nature of the Levitical sacrifices. They are for this present world and not for the world which is to come. If the Messiah is not or has not been resurrected, what is the point of faith in him? Paul says this makes us the most pitiful people on the planet, declaring Yeshua to be the Messiah. But if he can do no more than the animals offered by the priests, a cleansing for this present world alone, what's the point? This is why I believe we need to place more emphasis on the resurrection than we do on the crucifixion. And of course, I know I'm not minimizing. Please don't think I'm minimizing the crucifixion. There can be no resurrection of Messiah without his being crucified. But the ultimate victory is found in the empty tomb. The king is alive. Praise be the risen king. This is why I bristle at the title of that Newsboys song, The Cross Has the Final Word. And, and I'm, to be fair, I don't know all the lyrics to this song, but that title, and if that's the chorus, which gets repeated ad nauseum, which happens in a lot of these types of songs, that is a depressing song. If the cross has the final word, then we are the most pitiful people on the planet. And I think they're trying to say that the cross, uh, that at the cross, our sins were taken to die. And so they are no more. The issue is, if we're going to look at this thing, look at things scripturally and biblically, which I believe we should do. The issue is that according to scripture, atonement is not complete until the high priest enters the most holy place, which Yeshua did after he was bodily resurrected and then ascended to the Father, the true high priest in the most holy place, the reality of the most holy place. It seems that we talk preach and sing about the cross all year round. And then one time a year, the day many people call Easter, which is first fruits, the resurrection is celebrated. And I think this is backwards. We should celebrate the resurrection all year long. And, and perhaps on Passover and Yom Kippur, we can place a higher focus on the crucifixion. And that's that's my opinion. That's my, my belief regarding the situation. And you may disagree with that. No, we got to focus on the cross. I'm, I, I'm not going to arm wrestle you over it. This is just my point of view. I believe we need to focus on the victory, new life, and how we are to live. 
Yes, it is as a result of what was done on that crucifix. But the focus needs to be on receiving that new life. Anyway, I'll move forward here. So I won't, again, I'm not going to arm wrestle anyone over that point. It's okay. Picking up at verse 20. But the fact is that the Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Yeshua is the first to be resurrected for the coming kingdom. And you may say, well, but, but others were raised from the dead in the scriptures. And you're right. They are. There were. And that's true. Those individuals were revived or resuscitated, if you will. They were raised back to this life, meaning they died again. There was a funeral at some point for each of those people after they were raised back up to this life. Yeshua was the first resurrected. He will die no more. He is the first fruits for the coming kingdom. Picking up at verse 21, for since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come through a man. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so in connection with the Messiah all will be made alive. But each in his own order, the Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to the Messiah, Jew and Gentile, at the time of his coming. Then the culmination, when he, Yeshua, hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after having put an end to every rulership, yes, to every authority and power. When Messiah returns as the conquering king, Mashiach ben David, Messiah, the son of David, then those who belong to him will be resurrected and he will establish his kingdom on earth. Once his kingdom is thoroughly established, Messiah will hand the kingdom over to Hashem, the Father. Thereafter will come the new heaven and the new earth. Paul makes the connection between sin and death entering the world through Adam, whereas atonement and eternal life come to us through the Master, Yeshua, the Messiah. He goes on with this comparison with um, the first and second Adam a little bit later in this chapter. Lord willing, we'll get to that, some more of that in the next episode. So Paul continues here at verse 25, For he, Messiah, has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away with will be death, for he put everything in subjection under his feet. But when it says that everything has been subjected, obviously the word does not include God, who is himself the one subjecting everything to the Messiah. Now, when everything has been subjected to the Son, then he will subject himself to God, who subjected everything to him, so that God may be everything in everyone. Paul reveals the order of things regarding the coming millennial kingdom of Messiah and then the new heaven and earth, that in his kingdom all things will be put in subjection under Messiah. Everything 
with the exception, of course, of Hashem himself, which should go without saying, but Paul knows people like to try to read between the lines. This is where we will pause for today. At this, uh, at this portion of the letter, verse 29, which brings us to actually the halfway point, or uh, verse 28 brings us uh, right about to the halfway point of this chapter. As always, study to show yourself approved of God. I want to thank you for joining me in this study, and I hope that it is blessing you and perhaps challenging you. The resurrection is what gives us hope. It is where new life is found. It begins with the first fruits, the Messiah, Yeshua, the risen King of glory. There is a lost and dying world desperately seeking food, and they need the bread of life, King Messiah, Yeshua. So let's go out and give them heaven. Until next time, May the favor the Master Yeshua of Nazareth found in the eyes of Hashem be upon you and all your household. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding reign in your hearts and minds in the Messiah, Yeshua. Grace and peace. Chain Shalom.